0: So all you right-wingers, left-wingers, bigots, communists, there is a place for you in this world. Because this is the land of the free, the home of the brave, and 2Live is what we are. Gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. This is the February twenty sixth, twenty twenty edition of the show. My name is Justin Robert Young. We began with the dulcet tones of Uncle Luke of the Two Live Crew in his song Band in the USA." Because brace yourself, folks, but we're going to get a little inside baseball here. Many of you know that I also, in addition to this podcast, stream on the platform Twitch. Now, primarily, it's there for video games, but really, it is the premier destination for live-streamed content. It's got the best community tools. It's got the best live-streaming capabilities. It's got a very good mobile app. So you're able to just get your content out to the most amount of people live. Full disclosure, my wife works there. But I would have gone with Twitch. No matter what, because I do believe that it is the best in class, and I think that it's fairly clear anybody looking at the marketplace would say the same. By and large, what I do is for a couple hours, a few days a week, I'll just talk about politics. Anybody who wants to be there to chat me up, then I'm there for you. And eventually I will be again at twitch.tv/justin R Young. But if you go there right now, you will not find my channel. Because I, much like the 2 Live crew was from Broward County back in the early 90s that led them to make that song, have been banned from Twitch.tv. Now, why? Why would I be banned from Twitch.tv? And I was not alone. Some fairly major voices. Uh, uh, Chapo's Trap House. Majority Report. David Packman. Uh, some some homegrown Twitch folk like uh, Central Committee, Bad Bunny, The Serfs, even one of the more popular pop uh, personalities on Twitch, period, Trihex, he was taken down. Why? Because we were watching the debate. Now... I'm going to pause here to tell you guys a little bit about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or as it's referred to more colloquially, the DMCA. This is an archaic piece of legislation that was largely written before the modern internet had really begun. It did not foresee the world in which we live in. It did not foresee the up-to-the-minute necessity of how somebody who is making content could really use at least some kind of protection or benefit of the doubt, and yet it is indeed the law of the land. Now, I know from experience that the quickest way that I could turn off an audience of discerning folks like you is to immediately claim the victim beyond reproach. And I'm not going to do that here. But I will begin my dissertation, and by the way, thank you for coming to my TED Talk, by saying that the content that I was streaming was at the very least borderline. See, there is one defense to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and that is indeed fair use. That I am substantially transforming the original art, and it provides a public benefit so that it could not be reasonably confused with the CBS live stream. And I will admit this. While I know when these debates are being streamed on CNN or MSNBC, let's say theoretically one were to be streamed on Fox News, that those channels have big money deals with online streaming resellers, Sling, YouTube TV, stuff like that. They need to protect their content. And one of the places that they will look for people that are just blanket rebroadcasting it is Twitch. But I was visible on the screen the entire time. I was talking over most of the content, providing my own insight and analysis. So I, I, I will just say it was a jump ball. About two-thirds of the way through the stream, all of a sudden, everything goes dark. I can't broadcast anymore to Twitch, and uh, apparently there are, are entire Twitter bots that are set up just so you can be informed that, indeed, you have been banned. This ban will last for 24 hours, so I would be able to theoretically stream later tonight. And it does add one... DMCA copyright strike to my record should I get another DMCA copyright strike I would be disciplined for longer and if I were to get still more considering metaphor of three strikes and you're out I don't know what would happen to my channel there is a likelihood that I would be unable to stream on the platform anymore forever The money that I make on Twitch is not the biggest slice of the pie, but in a world where I don't have a boss, I only serve you guys in all the mediums for which I imagine you would like to be served. It is not something that I find super cool when it goes away against my will. So let me just take this time right now to remind you that the way I primarily fund this is by takepoliticsseriously.com. If you enjoy this content, if you enjoy this commentary, if you enjoy sending me all across the country to cover this particular race and any race beyond it, then I would implore you now, please head on over to take politics seriously.com. I find it very important. And, and look, it's not like Patreon, which is the platform that I'm funding on, doesn't have its own problems in terms of kicking people off for various different reasons, okay? All I'm trying to do is hedge my bets and minimize my risk. I don't want one thing to go down and all of a sudden I can't pay rent. So, take politics seriously.com. Quick follow-up. On this particular Twitch debacle, though. On the notice that me and all the other streamers got. The content was owned by CBS, but the DMCA claim was filed by a law firm called Praxis Political. Praxis Political has a website that looked like it was set up in five seconds on a service called Card, C-A-R-R-D, The email that was provided in the official DMCA claim was a dead email. The email on their website was also a dead email. There was a contact at PraxisPoll.com and then a legal at PraxisPoll.com, which now I feel comfortable giving out since obviously they don't work. The email was taken off the website late last night and the website itself went down today. Now, a lot of the other streamers that are are there, they're far more of a, a, advocacy streams, mostly by and large for Bernie Sanders. Many of them believe that this is something that was a chilling of commentary and speech that was for Bernie Sanders. If that is the case, then it is almost assuredly that when they were scanning for leftist stream, leftist stream, leftist stream, I got accidentally hoovered into that because of my Trotsky-ass beard. But otherwise, whether this be a chilling of free speech by bad, uh, bad faith DMCA strikes or this was filed by a shell company of another media consulting firm that is there to take down this content with no recourse by those who are affected by it, no ability to claim for fair use, this is something that I find repugnant and awful. And so, now that I've wasted 10 minutes of this podcast by complaining about my own stuff, we will now begin with your regularly scheduled program.
1: of these, uh, my fellow uh, uh, um, contestants up here, I guess
0: would be the right word for it, (laughs) given nobody pays attention to the clock. uh, I'm surprised they show up because I would have thought after I did such a good job in beating them last week that they'd be a little bit afraid to do that. Uh, We begin our debate coverage with some hot comedy by Mike Bloomberg. This was the Charleston debate. It happens before the South Carolina primary. So what were our our storylines going into this? You you have Will Bloomberg rebound. This was a disastrous uh, debut in Las Vegas last week. He still isn't on the ballot, by the way, in South Carolina. But can he seem better than he was? Bernie Sanders coming off a massive win in Nevada is the unquestioned front runner of this race at this point. And if you look forward to Super Tuesday, he looks like the prohibitive favorite for the nomination. Whether or not he'll be able to get all the delegates he needs to secure it is a different story. But will he be able to defend himself or will he crumble under the pressure? And then, as far as everybody else goes, Joe Biden is leading there in South Carolina. Can he not embarrass himself? Can he seal the deal? Do something that he has, by the way, despite three cracks at it, never done. And that is win a single primary or caucus in running for president. Couldn't do it in the 80s. Couldn't do it in 08. Hasn't done it yet. He has his best shot on Saturday. Can he land the plane? And as for everybody else, well, make yourself famous, kid. You've gotten to this point, and they all got different vectors on how they could possibly get back into the conversation, but there is no real pathway for any of them except let's hope one of the front runners totally implodes. So let's stay on Bloomberg for a second. He furthered his mixtape battle with Lizzie Warren. They decided to go back and forth on the uh, super family-friendly topic of whether or not Mike Bloomberg demanded one of his employees get an abortion. I didn't have a boss who said to me, kill it
1: the way that Mayor Bloomberg never have said to one of his pregnant employees. People want a chance to hear. People want a chance to hear from the women who I never said that. Senator Warren, that is a very serious charge that you leveled at the mayor. Yes. You told a woman to get an abortion. What evidence do you have of that? Uh, Her own words. And Mayor Bloomberg, could you respond to this? Never said it,
0: period, end of story. So we're going to go into some next level criticism of Michael Bloomberg in this segment. And part of it is this. You always have to understand what doors you're opening in a campaign. Comprehension is everything. And the audience, voters, only have so many threads that they can possibly follow. So after last week, one of the most tantalizing moments, obviously, was Elizabeth Warren just pantsing Mike Bloomberg on the idea that he is an absolute bigot sexist who has run roughshod over his employees for decades. That's what she is putting out there. She is saying he is indeed worse than Donald Trump. And if it disgusted you that Donald Trump could get the presidency over Hillary Clinton, while dozens of women came out and alleged that Donald Trump was inappropriate with them, then imagine holding your nose that tight to vote for Bloomberg in your own party. That's where she's going. I get that. I get where where, where she's trying to dig in on Bloomberg. But Bloomberg not only didn't have a way to get around that, he then fed into it. Over the last week, saying that he's combed through his entire history and found three women with NDAs that he would release. This is playing. Elizabeth Warren has set up this concept and Bloomberg has walked right into it. He deserved to face that buzzsaw yesterday because Elizabeth Warren is going to keep running this play until he can effectively defend it and make her pay for it. How do you do that? Well, you play to your strengths. And by and large, let me just say that Bloomberg got to his power pitch a few more times than he certainly did in Las Vegas. His power pitch is, I can handle money and budgets. Like I said last week, he is at his best when he sounds like your family's financial manager that saves your dad on taxes and helps you guys buy a house or pay one off a few years early. That's where he's at his best because he's going to be able to talk about money in a way that the senators and politicians simply aren't. He's also going to be able to say, hey, I'm not, aside from when I ran New York, which is its own specific issue, a politician, a career politician like these guys. So, yeah, I don't think that the, that the American people want to hear us find every little thing that we ever needed to uh, apologize for in the past. Everything that I've needed to apologize for, I have. Let's focus on the future. Let's focus on what I can do. If he's not able to pivot to that, when Warren comes at him with this stuff, she's just going to keep coming at him. Now, whether or not it benefits either of them, that's a different story. What was our other Bloomberg weakness? Our other Bloomberg weakness is that he comes off totally out of touch as somebody that is so far beyond the average voter in terms of his wealth that he can't even put the words together that kitchen table voters would react to. Here's an example of that. About it, then rather just demagogue about it. Let, let's just go on the record. They talked about 40 Democrats, 21 of those were people that I spent $100 million to help elect. The, all of the new Democrats that came in and put Nancy Pelosi in charge and gave the Congress the ability to control this president, I, bought, I, I got them. The fact is- Whoa, 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 whoa. You, 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 you what them? I bought- I, You bought them? I bought- I, Again, this is a perspective thing. This is, from Bloomberg's perspective, he looks at this in a very systemic way. There's a lot of money on the right. He's money that is on the left. So it's very important. The donor class is very important. And it's clear that he kind of believes that everybody else that's up there on that stage is just kind of, well, replaceable. Politicians come. Politicians go. Some are to the left. Some are a little bit more moderate. Moderate. What stays forever, old as oak, is the money, and he's the money. Now, whether or not you believe that to be true or are repulsed by it, the reality is that he could have said exactly what he said in a different way. If you bring it down to the kitchen table issues, what has That Congress done for the average Democratic voter. What have they fought against? What have they pushed for? Take that and then replace it with the money. I mean, when you start putting a price tag on things, it's just gauche, right? Just say, I did everything in my power to make sure that we had flipped the house because I felt so alarmed by this president. But make it about the issues. And then you put yourself in a role that is about supporting, tactically supporting. As opposed to just saying, I spent $100 million to buy these seats. Why aren't you nicer to me? But beyond Bloomberg, who, who faces his own troubles, because it looks like that, that, that Nevada debate uh, really did. Put a dent in him. All of his polls have stalled. He's uh, now receding in some of the Super Tuesday polls. I mean, I can't imagine a foreign agent that would have been more effective to get Bernie Sanders the nomination than Michael Bloomberg for him to just eclipse the sun just as there was a a, a younger moderate that was gaining steam in Iowa and New Hampshire, I, I mean, I, I just won't let go of it. it. It's just, it's one of the most, like, I don't know. I, I, I tend to be more forgiving of media because I'm aware of the day in and day out job, but that was malpractice to focus as much as they did on Bloomberg because of a bunch of national polls that ultimately won't mean anything. Come on, come on. All right, let's focus on the actual front runner. The actual front runner is Bernie Sanders. He decided to get himself into a a, a thing that uh, I don't know exactly how much it's going to affect his, vote count but i do think that it's something that he's going to get hit on in the general if he indeed is the nomination and that is a baffling defense of old comments that he made uh, about fidel castro and the benefits of the cuban revolution what i said is what barack
1: obama said in terms of cuba that cuba made progress on education yes i think Really? (coughs) Really?
0: Really? (coughs) Yes, really, Bernie. This is a bad thing. Why are you talking about this? Just say I said some stuff. Uh, Obviously, this is a complicated situation and uh, we're not going to talk about that. What people really want to hear about is a guaranteed minimum wage, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, Pivot, anywhere. This is just a loser issue for you. And the idea that the defense is, well, Obama said it, is just baffling because the... All right, here's the issue. The issue is this. You are trying to get elected president of the United States in a revolution, okay? You say it yourself. This is part of the branding. This is not anybody putting words in your mouth. You are promising massive benefits, the likes of which... The United States has never seen, whether or not we're a black sheep in the the scale of the world, whatever, right? But this is something that you are putting a lot of time and effort into. If you focus on issues like, oh, the Chinese lifted people out of poverty, that's what he said at the town hall, or Castro had a great literacy program, then what you're doing is drawing attention to this terrifying argument For many moderate Democrats, that the ends justify the means. Or at the very least, that the side effects of imprisonment, death, harassment, uh, a seizure of property and wealth without any recourse, yeah, that can exist in a separate bucket, As but they really, really, really we're great about building libraries. That's just a bad look. It just it, it conjures up everything that can go wrong with an expanded government. And if what you want is to have people excited about what they're going to get from these expanded government programs, then reminding them that they have in other scenarios resulted in death, imprisonment and seizure of property and wealth without recourse is just not a good idea, Bernie. Just get off the Castro stuff or find a way to pivot beyond it. That's troubling. Cuz that that right there is a gaping hole that Donald Trump will have no problem driving through repeatedly. Because here's the fact of the matter. Anything is possible. We're the richest country in the history of civilization. We can pretty much do anything we want. The question is if it's sustainable, and the question is if it makes everybody's lives better. So to say, oh, sure, we, we uh, say that the authoritarian stuff that they did, you know, the killings, the imprisonments, the seizure of property and... Well, without recourse. Yeah, 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 bad, 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 bad. But this literacy program, it's like, okay, at some point you have to understand that at least in that scenario, and again, you are defending that scenario, they are connected. And it doesn't matter if Obama said it, it was dumb when Obama said it. Now, full disclosure, I'm a little sensitive to this. When you grow up, in South Florida, and you're around so many Cuban exiles, and you watch on television on a on a near weekly or monthly basis, people risking their lives on these uh, strung-together flotillas to escape Cuba, you had a hard time thinking about the rad Dewey Decimal System that Fidel set up. That's just me. By all metrics, it looks like a two-horse race in South Carolina. That would be between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So Biden took a swing at Sanders, specifically on guns. Back in the day, Bernie used to be a lot more favorable to gun ownership coming from Vermont. But uh, in typical Biden fashion, nothing can be easy, huh?
1: 150 million people have been killed since 2007 when Bernie voted to exempt the gun manufacturers from liability. More than all the wars, including Vietnam, from that point on. Carnage on our street, and I want to tell you, if I'm elected and I'm coming for you, and gun manufacturers, I'm gonna take you
0: on. Oh my God, 150 million? 150 since 2007? A hundred thirteen years, we've had a hundred and fifty million people dead. Oh my God, the the population of the United States is three hundred and twenty-seven million, according to the two thousand and eighteen count. That's like half of America. We killed half of us with guns. Well, we did. Uh, that was uh, a little inflated by, by Joe. Uh, according to the Center for American Progress, the uh, number of firearm deaths in the United States from 2007 to 2017, so 10 years, was 373,663. I mean, look, that's it's not a small amount, right? And, and the FBI statistics say that from 2008 to 2017, More than 1.5 million aggravated assaults involved a firearm. Not 150 million people dead. That would have been one of the most horrifying incidents in horrifying 13 years in in world history. But good news for Joe. That doesn't even really make the metal stand in terms of uh, embarrassing things he said this week which include this gem.
1: ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over. If
0: you like what you see, help out. If not, vote for the other guy. Give me a look, though, okay? A reminder to everybody that Joe Biden is not running for the United States Senate, but rather the presidency of the United States. He is running against other candidates and not against other Bidens. And he is currently your front runner in South Carolina. Politics. We already did the big uh, support us thing at the very beginning of the show, but I do want to remind you guys techpoliticsseriously.com is where you can support us. $3 uh, gets you two bonus episodes each and every week. Can't find a better deal. And those are going to come from uh, all these other states. Uh, I, I will. Almost assuredly have some South Carolina content for you tomorrow. That's when I fly out there into Columbia. And then free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five days a week, five stories a day, absolutely free. All right. Just a quick plug. We are going to have ourselves a conversation about the two-party system. Why it's so reinforced, why people have a different reaction to third parties, the whole nine yards. My guest today is Seth Maskett. He's a professor of political science and director of the Center of American Politics at the University of Denver. He writes regularly for Mischiefs of Faction and 538.com. He's currently writing a book called Learning from Lost, the Democrats 2016 to 2020, due out in September with Cambridge University Press. Seth, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: All right. This is something that I find very, very interesting because one of the things that I get the most from listeners that are either you know more independently minded or from another country is general questions about why the American system is the way it is and nothing puzzles specifically the the European folks more than our two-party system so so let's start here uh, why is this structure important in our current American political landscape
1: um well, let's see. Uh, do you want to talk about why is it important or why do we have it or let's start with how we got here? Why do we have okay. it? Okay. I mean, there, there's this principle in um, uh, in political science, you know, generally known as Duverger's law, which is you know, maybe not exactly a law, but um, it's uh, it's a tendency uh, for democracies that have the type of elections we have. Um, to end up with two parties. That is, um, elections that are these first past the post, uh, the plurality winner wins the entire election. So, you know, no matter how many people are running for one uh, congressional seat or the governor's office or the presidency, um, whoever gets slightly more votes than the other people gets the whole prize. And so there's a tendency in those systems for people to not want to. Um, for voters to not want to waste their votes that is they they realize if they're gonna cast a, a vote that they're interested in a candidate who only has maybe ten or twenty percent support that that's probably not going to get them anywhere um, and so they will tend to converge uh, their support around one of the two candidates with a real chance of of, of winning that race you know there's a difference if you have like um you know a, a proportional representation system as you know, many, many parliamentary democracies have where you can have a, you know, a party can get like 20% of the vote and end up with something like 20% of the seats in parliament. And in that case, it, it makes good sense to to cast a vote for a party like that. We don't have a system like that. And for the most part, uh, you know, the the less popular parties have just have tended not to do very well. um, And, you know, rarely get more than just a smattering of support in elections. Is
0: part of it just the size of our country that uh, at a certain point you want the most powerful parties? And if they're demonstrating themselves to be effective over a large enough group of you know, counties, states, that that's just inevitable
1: to, that you're going to winnow things down? Well, there have been some pretty large countries, um, pretty large democracies with plenty more parties than we have. Um, and we've been you know basically a two party system uh, you know, for, you know, functionally for our entire existence, but we basically had the democratic and Republican parties, uh, with pretty with close to a lock on the electoral system since the 1850s when we yeah. were a much smaller democracy. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's proven pretty resilient here. You know, that doesn't mean a third party can't happen, but, and, you know, occasionally someone is able to break through and, uh, in, in a state, you know, under under an unusual setting of circumstances. But right now you have like, you know, 99 percent of the elected offices out there are held either by a Democrat or Republican. It's just it, it's very hard to crack into. And as a result of that, you know, you know, most of the money goes to the major parties because donors don't want to waste their time with a smaller party. And almost all the, the good candidates who know what they're doing will affiliate with a major party, even if they don't necessarily like the major parties all that much, they just recognize this is how you actually get elected here.
0: So if you are a third party, how have the most, uh, uh, what, what are the most effective strategies for
1: third parties to
0: try to gain any kind of influence?
1: I mean, it's, it, it has helped in the past for them to, you know, to, to, to kind of, uh, you know, attach themselves to uh, someone who has some fame uh, outside the political system. Uh, you know, Jesse Ventura managed to win as a third-party candidate in, uh, in Minnesota. Um, you know, occasionally that happens. Once in a while you might see, um, you know, both major parties, be, you know, becoming very unpopular in voters' minds. Um, uh, there was an unusual election, a, a gubernatorial election in Colorado 10 years ago, where um a uh a candidate managed to win the Republican nomination for governor here who most uh Republicans most Republican leaders didn't like um you know just through sort of a a quirk of the primary election and they ended up backing uh Tom Tancredo who was running as a third party candidate at the time and that kind of split the Republican vote cost costing the election but you know you can find some uh, unusual circumstances where um, some third party candidates have been able to to take advantage of like you know temporary unpopularity of the major parties um, and, and jump in. But for the most part, um, you know it, even people with pretty weak affiliations with the parties, I mean, think like, for example, Donald Trump, yeah. who uh, you know hardly a lifelong Republican, um, but he wanted to be president and he decided that joining a major party was the way to do it rather than running, uh, an independent or, or third party candidacy. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders is only tenuously a Democrat. Um, but rather than running as an independent or third party presidential candidate, if he wants the chance of, of getting in, uh, to the Oval Office, he realizes he needs to do so, um, as the nominee of a major party.
0: One of the elections that always fascinates me is 1992, where I think probably for many people who are listening, the most famous independent candidate for president, Ross Perot, ran. And one of the things that I found in, in looking back at that one was that, you know, it was into like June of an election year where Ross Perot, before he suspended his campaign, was actually leading in at least one poll uh against incumbent George H.W. Bush and and Bill Clinton which is kind of like mind-bending to think back to now why was that and granted there were plenty of problems with the campaign that eventually sunk it but in terms of that initial idea there was obviously something there between an independent running and the electorate what do you think made that special
1: yeah that was that was kind of wild actually um one of the things we see and this is kind of a, a, a general thing, is that third party candidacies tend to look good the summer before an election. Um, you know, people are kind of annoyed with the major party candidates and uh, so the, you know, the, the summer,
0: the summer of an election year or the summer before yeah, an election the, year.
1: The, no, the, the summer of an election year. Gotcha. Um, OK. OK. You know, the, it was really ramped up that year. Um, you had, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush in the Oval Office, who not that long ago had been, like, this incredibly popular uh, <laughs> The, the most, right after the, the Gulf most War. The most popular, yeah. right? <laughs> Literally yeah. the title holder uh, <laughs> uh, after
0: the Gulf War.
1: And then then the economy tanks, and his his approval ratings really take a nosedive. Um, and, you know, people came out of the Democratic primaries with not necessarily the most positive view of, of Bill Clinton. He still had a number of scandals dogging him. So, you know, th- there was a time when Um, people were not yet that sold on the major party candidates and they were open to the idea of of someone else. Um, And Perot was using a lot of personal wealth uh, to to get his name out there and and doing a very effective job of it. But one of the trends that we tend to see as the the general election campaign kicks in 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 the fall of an election year, um, one thing that we know that election ads and, and other sort of election activities do is they don't necessarily change that many people's minds so much as they remind Democrats why they like the Democratic Party. They remind Republicans why they want to be a Republican. Um, they tend to pull all the people who are, you know, have some history with their party back home. And that happened pretty strongly that in 1992, uh, Yeah, as, as you pointed out, like Ross Perot was leading for a little while. Um but slowly, all the you know the people who lean Democratic came back to Bill Clinton, the people who lean Republican came back to Bush. Perot still did very impressively uh, uh, Perot obviously
0: had problems with his own campaign and he suspended it and said that there was CIA influence because of his rivalry with George H.W Bush then restarts it after he said he wouldn't and and he still does pretty well in my mind, I, I don't think that we have had in presidential, uh, at least in the presidential conversation, uh, things have never really been the same when it comes to going outside that two-party system. In fact, it seems like the Venom has almost reached uh, a greater and greater heights whenever anybody mentions anything third-party. Do you think that there is a reason for that specifically, or is this just the two-party system kind of protecting itself? Uh,
1: do you mean Venom directed it? At- people who talk about running as as third party candidates or
0: I mean yeah I guess really third parties in general but third party voters third party candidates you know uh uh you know from Ralph Nader to Jill Stein uh there, or Gary Johnson there there right. seems to be uh you know as we've gone on past you know a moment where where the nation seemed to at least consider a third party for president now it's become more and more of a you're you're ruining you're you're ruining the chances for either a democrat or a republican
1: um yeah i mean i think it is it, there is yeah you can see that anytime someone does talk about a candidacy like that and there is a lot of pushback that they get um in part because um uh, you know third-party candidacies can be fairly unpredictable um you know usually they uh Again, usually they don't do very well. They get maybe you know a few thousand, maybe even a few hundred thousand votes at the presidential level, and are are fairly inconsequential. But we're also in an era where um, presidential elections tend to be pretty close between the major parties. Um, it's been I think more than 30 years since we've had uh, any candidate get below 45% of the vote. Um, you know they, they they tend to be you know lost or won within a few points, and in, in a case like that. A, you know, even someone who doesn't get a whole lot of third party votes can end up tipping the election. Um, You know, Ralph Nader is a perfect example of that. Only got about one percent of the vote in 2000. Um, But he pulled enough from uh, from Al Gore in one state that that uh, that made a huge difference in history. And so you you never really know how these things are going to play out. And, you know, people who are uh, kind of attached to one of the major parties, which is, you know, still uh, most voters to some extent, um, you know, tend to get a little uh, skittish when when people talk about going in that direction.
0: Is that fair, though, the 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 uh, the, the Gore, uh, you know, question with with Nader, because I've always found that to be a, an interesting leap, that obviously Green Party voters would be more likely to vote as Democrats. But. You know, everybody knew that this was going to be a close election, and then they made the conscious decision not to vote for Al Gore. Uh, It just always seems to me a little bit odd whenever there's that direct math applied of like, well, if everybody who voted for X voted for Y, that things would be different. It just seems to uh, ignore the fact that maybe the, the Democratic or Republican candidate didn't do their job in getting enough people to come out and vote for them.
1: Well, sure. I mean, there's, there's a lot of moving parts there. Um, and, uh, you know, there've been a few studies done, particularly that election, uh, you know, some polling in that election uh, where you find that, uh, yes, those people who voted for Ralph Nader, um, if Ralph Nader were not running and they still voted, you know, that the vast majority of them would have voted for Al Gore. We don't know if all of them would have voted. Um, some of them still would have voted in, in some different directions. And, uh, you know, at least by some uh, some polling, you know, the the bulk of those voters didn't expect Ralph Nader to actually win. They wanted to, you know, quote unquote, send a message. Um, You know, they wanted to say that they were not content with the choices that have been given to them. And and they wanted to to signal uh, that there was there were options for something better. Um, Didn't necessarily think through uh you know some of the aspects of you know that this could lead to a somewhat worse situation from their perspectives um or if they did they thought well that's okay this this you know this, I mean this, that, that, that was Washington. the message the message was right. said, right we're like we're still yeah.
0: talking about it in the year of our lord 2020
1: right that this uh, that this heightens the contradictions um you know this you know by by having you know by having george bush gets elected that even shows um you know, that, that that will reveal some further problems with the system and, and people will see the need for some sort of serious reforms. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are people, you know, people offer a variety of different logic for votes like that.
0: So in your opinion, now we're obviously coming into an election year. We are moving into one of those infamous summers where people seem to be more and more discontent with the two parties. Uh, what is the state? What, what is what is the the Bill of Health? for the two-party system now
1: in America? <laughs> um, it is uh, dicey uh, right now. So we're, we're in this kind of fascinating era. Um, uh, fellow political scientist, uh, Julia Zari has, um, I, I think, kind of put the label on it well, where she describes uh, our current system as having uh, strong partisanship but weak parties. Um, you yeah. know, that is, voters are, are, are very strongly partisan right now. Um, they'll almost always vote for, um, the nominee of their party, uh, that they're, that they're aligned with. Um, but parties themselves are not particularly strong. That is, they don't have a whole lot of ability to decide who gets their nomination or doesn't, or, you know, any ability to kind of screen out candidates. Um, we're seeing, you know, if you look at some of the changes on the democratic side in the last few years and the rules, um, even, you know, members of the DNC have, have made a lot of efforts to kind of symbolically, but also, you know, factually, you know, weaken their own party, uh, to limit the role of superdelegates, to uh, make uh, Democratic primaries and caucuses more open, to make it uh, easier for a candidate without a lot of backing by party insiders um, to have a shot at the nomination. And we saw that on the Republican side in 2016 as well. Saying up with this weird situation where, um, you know, almost anyone could get the nomination, but whoever gets that nomination gets all that party supporters behind them and has a real shot at winning.
0: So we are, I mean, obviously Donald Trump uh, was a blow to the then establishment of the Republican Party, and we are facing some questions now on the Democratic side, but these kind of supernovas within the party can either strengthen them or that we have the the possibility of a of a fracture if i'm
1: hearing you correctly um yeah it's uh you know it's a it's a strange time for parties right now um there has just historically been um a lot of power by people within the party you know not necessarily in like any sort of a party machine kind of way, but for influential people in the party to kind of guide the decisions the party makes, to yeah. to lean toward one type of establishment candidate or another. And a lot of that control has has gone away and there's a lot more just resistance to that in in the public um, in and among activists in, in recent years where um, any sort of effort by a party to make a decision is, is immediately branded as corrupt. Um, and it's, you know, that, that, that's just a, a, a sign for, you know, a fairly weak party system right now.
0: How much of this is because of the ability to organize on the Internet?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, the Internet has had a number of interesting effects on, on the political system and the party system in a way that, and and in ways that, you know, I'm I'm not sure we've fully figured out. Um, fundraising has obviously been revolutionized, um, by Mm -hmm. the internet. It's just a lot easier to raise money when you, you don't have to actually organize a fundraising event anymore or organize a mail-in campaign. Um, the parties have been very effective in doing that. Uh, the internet has put supporters in touch with each other, um, Uh, more easily you know you can have right after a speech or right after a debate um you know people go online and they're just immediately assaulted with emails and pop-up ads and and other ways for them to to give small amounts of money or to you know organize events or or attend upcoming events in their area um it's kind of revolutionized it um there's also some aspects where um uh, this is, you know, one of the things we're thinking about in terms of, you know, how much control do your parties still have? Um, the, the authors of the, uh, that book, "The Party Decides," that came out about a decade ago, um, mm-hmm. that uh, you know talked about, you know, how how insiders sort of control nominations. Um, you know, one of the things they've talked recently about is, you know, the, the quote unquote invisible primary stage. You know, that that yeah. period before the Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire primary when uh, you have activists and donors and others just sort of checking out the candidates and talking with each other about who they like and who they don't like and picking favorites. Um, Yeah. Thanks to the internet. I mean, the invisible primary has gotten a lot more visible. Um, You know, there's all these websites now that, that, uh, that track polls and endorsements and uh, you can just, you can just get all this information out about about the candidates and who's lining up behind them. Um, and that it used to be just maybe a few hundred or a few thousand people across the nation talking about these things. Now it's hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. There's just there's a lot more cooks in the kitchen now than there used to be. It it, it just makes coordination a lot harder.
0: I think there's also a a ideological uh a kind of chaos that happens when. You know, if if a party elder said, all right, well, let's let's take single payer healthcare as an example. Right. But what, what, what is now kind of referred to as Medicare for all uh, in the past, you could have a party elder that says, oh, look, we'd love to do it, but it's not feasible and it won't play. And, and that would kind of be an outsized voice in that conversation where now if it's trending on Twitter every day, then you're going to have a hard time telling some of your most passionate supporters that this is not something that has popular momentum, even if, you know, trending topics on Twitter are not the most perfect metric to understand uh, a nationwide <laughs> viability. Uh, uh, there, there, there seems to just be a lot of the Internet has given us evidence for everything simultaneously at all times, uh, which I think is hard to, to, to maintain leadership of.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think that, you know, you think like 20 or 30 years ago. Um, you know, someone might try and float an idea, you know, either about healthcare reform or something else. And members of Congress would say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not sure there's really much public support for that sort of thing. And then maybe, uh, maybe, and maybe a protest would appear outside their window. Maybe there'd be a march on Washington or in their district office or something like that. And then there's always sort of the question of, is this an authentic March? Is this really grassroots support? Yes. Or is they just being paid to be there by some, by some, you know, by some wealthy lobby group, you know, there's always those questions. Now that, you know, there can be sort of, you know, Twitter campaigns for almost anything, um, you know, it, it's much easier to stir up, um, some segment of the public and it's never entirely clear to elected leaders, um, you know, just how real that is, how much that would translate into votes that could affect their career one way or the other. Or if it's just some sort of brief Twitter bubble or if it's if it's being generated by some bot accounts or something like that. I think it's, it's made that whole world a lot more confusing to figure out.
0: Well, And it doesn't uh, doesn't help the fact that the president was somebody that by all available conventional wisdom didn't have a winning platform, right? Did not have the electoral horsepower to get himself over the finish line, and yet, here we are. Uh, uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Crazy <laughs> times. Uh, all right, well, uh, let me ask you one more question uh, about this yeah. specific uh, uh, moment that we are in with the Democratic Party. You're hearing a lot more, in fact, on stage during the debate this week, five out of the six candidates made at least... Oblique gestures to the idea that a brokered convention is something that they would be comfortable with uh, with only Bernie Sanders, who will likely have the most delegates, although whether or not he'll have enough to uh, have a majority remains to be seen. Uh, It is my opinion that people are kind of underrating the kind of division that will come from a brokered convention. and, And indeed, I think it could have lasting ramifications on the party considering the popularity and the media saturation of politics now compared to the last time we had it over 50 years ago do you think that that something like a brokered convention is being talked about maybe too casually by both the uh, the media and the candidates themselves
1: i mean you know in in some ways, the broker convention is just like you know, it's it's the perennial fantasy scenario uh, for people like us, you know oh sure, yeah for, for, for yeah, yeah, because
0: because the because the conventions are normally boring, and this would be like the most it would be, for us, it would be like
1: space camp. It would be like living through history, <laughs> right, right. delegates would actually have a job to do. Um, and so that would be obviously in many ways it would be fascinating to watch um. But, yeah, there's potential for serious divisiveness there, um, you know, particularly in some of the scenarios being talked about where, yeah, you, you could have a situation where, say, a candidate like Sanders has 40%, 45% of the delegates, um, but not the majority needed for the nomination. And, uh, you know, it's hard to know what would happen at that point. Um, what I mean, one thing we know that would happen is Sanders and his his supporters would be talking about how um, he, he has the most support. He's the plurality winner. And therefore, you know, the, the Democrats are morally obligated to nominate him at that point. Um, that there, you know, anything else would be undemocratic. He's already, he's already said things along these lines. Um, that's a really, you know, risky proposition there. I mean, this is, in many ways, this is what conventions were designed to do. And the rules that the party agreed to before there were any candidates running um, was that this is how you get the nomination. You get 50 percent of the delegates. And there is traditionally a lot of wheeling and dealing that occurs. You have people who are appointed or elected as delegates exactly to make these sorts of decisions as to decide what is best for the party, what is best for the country um, and not automatically go with whoever has the plurality of support at that point you know that said we're talking about i mean when you're talking about like super delegates or you know dnc members or elected uh delegates or anything like that we're talking about um you know these are mostly politicians to some extent yeah yeah um <laughs> these are people who have elected been elected they don't necessarily want to go beyond what the voters in their own state want um they want to have careers within the party and uh you know so to to you know, to to go against someone with a lot of public support seems kind of unlike what they're prepared to do. But just you know, branding something like that uh, as as undemocratic is, I, I think, a really dicey proposition.
0: Well, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's just crazy to me. I mean, I, I've always been a skeptic on it on on the broker convention. Even now, I'm I'm a skeptic that it'll happen because I just feel like we've built a system specifically to avoid it you know that that eventually something is going to break in a way that that does not put us there but that being said man in in a world where we're freeze framing uh you know uh, frame by frame to see if a 25 year old used sleight of hand on a coin flip in iowa uh you know just <laughs> to, to, to switch a a proportional delegate like uh, i don't know if like the the world in which brokered conventions Happened regularly back in the you know 40s and 50s. I don't think that it was prepared for the kind of firepower that we have these days in terms of uh, uh, you know passion and organization. It, it just it just seems seems like a roadmap to hell. But who knows? I guess we'll all find out together <laughs> in Milwaukee. Uh, well Yeah, we'll know soon. <laughs> Seth Maskett, uh, you are a professor of political science and director of the Center of American Politics at the University of Denver. You write regularly for Mischiefs of Faction in 538, and you're currently working on a book called Learning from Loss, The Democrats 2016 to 2020, due out this September. Now, that's prime time. That's exactly when people want to be buying books like this, uh, due uh, from Cambridge University Press. Uh, thank you so much, Seth.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: It was great talking to you. Politics! And that'll wrap us up for today. I want to thank my Titanic $10 tier. Adam, Adam, Andrew, Andy, Brad, Chad, Dennis, DL, laser, Frozen, Summers, Jim, Jonathan, Lindsay, Michael, Mike, Nicholas, Nick, Olin and Angel, Paul, Paul, Peter, Squids, Mixtape, Steven, The Gen, Will, and Zach you want to join their ever-expanding ranks, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And an update to how we opened this show. Indeed, we have a resolution for you. It was discovered by Twitch that the DMCA takedown that banned me from their platform and ended my stream prematurely last night was indeed illegitimate. It was a hoax. Somebody claimed that they had the authority to do it via CBS, and we were all silenced because of it. That, to me, gives everybody all the more reason to support us on Patreon. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Three bucks gets you two bonus episodes, and a lot of these friends are out here on the road, which is where I'll be tomorrow on a flight to uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Very excited for that. If you would like to uh, follow me on social media when I'm on the road, good time to do it. Justin R. Young on Instagram. Justin R. Young on Twitter. You want to send me an email, uh, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Follow my newsletter, Free Political Newsletter, at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Until next time, this is your old bell, Justin Robert Young, saying... Some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. And I heard one the other day that talked about politics. But this is the only one that talks about... No!